Welcome to The Word, people, where we bring you straight up Sales 411. You get to chill and hang with the best and the brightest in the sales industry. And we don't do it boring, we do it with swagger. So let's go, people. It is on. Hey, hey, everybody. What's up? Welcome to The Word, episode 33. This one is going to be a dope word because we're going to tackle something that's flying around the web hustle and grit and grind and all that shit and we're going to tackle it with the person who literally wrote the book right so folks the word is all about bringing you fat dope real life sales experience knowledge in a fun exciting way not in a boring 1970s make america great kind of way again so with that kiki i'm here with my girl kiki kiki what's going on sister Hello, I'm super excited to have Angela here. We uh, had quite a gritty story to tell ourselves getting you on board here. Um, and I'm really excited to dig into grit, the power of passion and perseverance. I think salespeople especially need that. Great. Truth, truth. So that is it, folks. This is who we have today. We have Angela Duckworth. Angela is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of a new book called Grit. Her, her, her work has been targeted at trying to understand what makes people successful. And you will be happy to know that it's not as much about accident of birth as you like to think it is, not who you have gone to, the schools you went to, the IQ you have, but how much work you're willing to put, you're willing to put in. So without further ado, welcome Angela D. What's going on, sister? Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, it's going to be fun. So let's, let's kick off. Why are you here today, Angela? Why are you here on The Word? I'm here because you are really gritty and you wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here because I want to talk about, uh, about my work. I'm, I'm really interested in the questions you're going to ask me. I'm interested in your perspective, really. Um, but it is also true that you are relentlessly persistent. And so um, I was on book tour and, and all my time was was booked. It was it was, um, it was sort of accounted for, um, but but you made this happen, and I am honored by by your uh, you know your determination. Well, it was earned. It was absolutely earned. Uh, I saw you speak in New York when the book first came out. I read the book. I'd actually known about you and your work before your book came out. I think we had actually reached out to you on the show like last year, and you're like, oh, I'm writing a book, so hit me up later. Um, right. So it was earned, sister. It's absolutely earned because I'm fascinated by this. Best kind of success. So, yeah, right? Amen. Amen. So with that, look, you have a great story that I'd like you to start this whole thing off with about your own grit and something. When I was sitting in New York, you said, oh, I have this goal to meet somebody because they're one of the most greedy people in the world. And now I just saw 13 hours ago you tweeted. You finally made that happen. Tell everybody about it. I, like, climbed to the top of the mountain, right? So I have been studying Will Smith, the – musician, the actor, uh, you know, the, the Hollywood giant for years, I'm thinking at least 10. I think I've been on his trail for about a decade. And I have tried every means of getting in touch with him. But as you might guess, people like Will Smith have a lot of walls before you get to them. So um, I, I thought to myself, while I was writing the book, and I was quoting him, right? But I was quoting him from, you know, his own interviews with other people over the years that had been videotaped. I, I, I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna meet this guy. Like, you know, I'm gonna be that passionate and persevering person. 
So I won't give you all the details, but uh, because you know what? The details are always boring. But as we all know who've ever achieved anything, there are a lot of those details. Anyway, eventually, last night, he's promoting his new his new film. Um, he had a dinner very generously. This guy is so nice. The last thing I said to him that evening was like, you are nice. <laughs> but he very kindly invited me. He had a bunch of his friends. Uh, uh, I sat next to Larry Gilmore, who was unbelievable. And so, um, you know, we talked about our theories of achievement uh, for the evening, which is just like my dream dinner. Like I get to talk to people who are so thoughtful. And by that, I mean, Will and also Larry about, you know, like what, what is life about and how do you optimize your own performance? You know, what are the psychological barriers? Like, how do you even think about your own mind? And so, yeah. And then I took the train home back to Philly, you know, Will's from Philadelphia, but yeah, right. Yeah. right? Like, I'm, I'm and, um, and it was great. It was great. It was, um, it was a little surreal. And, um, and I will say that as impressed as I was, about you know the quality of his thinking about you know about about human nature. I really was also struck as I am with many of the people that I most admire. Like he is nice. He he treated everybody like royalty, like every single person. And um, uh, so you know that's character. That is, I I love that story, and I'm getting all like you know goosebumps and all that because I do believe I do believe in my heart of hearts that the staying power of super athletes, even though they can't perform anymore, for the most part, there's always outliers, and super famous people is their niceness. Like, they, for some reason, they recognize that all that blood, sweat, and tears and everything they did, I don't want to call them humble, because I think that's oversimplification, but there is a commitment to other people and a niceness that they don't shed, that allows them to maintain, yes? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly, like, the, the, the people that leap to mind, and like you said, you know, I'm sure people will tell you about exceptions, um, but, you know, there is something, I, I, I think it's not a coincidence that some of the people who are the most passionate and persevering, the most accomplished, are really also the most authentic and, um, like, genuinely other-oriented. Um, one of the things that Will said that I, you know, I was the whole way home just, like, reflecting on, um, this conversation, obviously, you don't spend 10 years trying to do something and then forget about it. Um, but, you know, I asked him, like, what are you, you know, what are you trying to do now, right? Like, like, um, so uh, he said, creation and relation, right? Creating and relating. When you make a movie, it's like you're creating something. Um, and you are relating in the best possible way with other people. And so that overlap. And um, I will say that piece about relating, I mean, uh, one of the things that you know, I think is true about gritty people is they are most often driven by some purpose that is about relating to other people. It's, it's, um, it's almost never a completely solipsistic, selfish pursuit. No, and, and I, I don't want to go to a rat hole, but I, I like what you said about creation and relation. I blogged about this a little while ago, and I say it to my daughters, and I haven't said it in a while because I don't drop them up at school summertime. i got to get back into it. But every morning when I sit my daughters at school, I would say, listen, girls, I want you to create something, learn something, and share something. Just do those three things today, and, and everything else can be create something, learn something, and share something. So it's sort of validating to hear him say creation, relation. I mean, I think that's what it's about at the end of the day. You really can't do much if you can't create you're not sharing or connecting and you're not learning and growing. So that was awesome. All right. So I love your story. Congratulations. Way cool. Everybody. I am, 
I am talking to Angela Duckworth. She is the author of Grit and a University of Penn professor and has done tremendous amounts of work around success and primarily what it takes in the idea of grit. So Angela, let's take a minute to probably the equivalent of you, uh, of a famous person singing a song for the umpteenth thousandth time because everybody loves it. What is grit? What made you write the book? And tell us a little bit about the backstory of how you got here. So I'll start with what I what I define grit to be. I define grit as a combination of passion and perseverance, both in combination for the long term, striving for some goal that is meaningful to you, that you can say, you know, I love this. This is what I deeply, truly, authentically want to do, and then working really hard at it. So it's it's not giving up, but not giving up in your effort, but not giving up in your commitment, those two things. Why did I study? Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. I was going to say, I was like, oh, wait, you had another part of that, which is like the backstory of this. So um, I came to the study of the psychology of high achievers through education, through, um, through kids. I mean, since I was a teenager, I, uh, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I, I felt um, like I wanted to, I felt like everybody feels, I, I feel like everybody has some desire to like help people, you know, you like walk down the street and there's like so many people to help, right? People don't have homes, people have jobs, like, so I wanted to help kids and I started off um, uh, doing different things in education. I taught in classrooms, middle school and high school math. And You're being humble, by the way. You're being humble. You quit a big, fat, high paying, dope job. I did. I quit a high-paying job to uh, to teach, you know, uh, on the Lower East Side before the Lower East Side was cool. Um, and, you know, these, these kids were hard to teach. I won't lie about that. And, you know, I think the thing about coming to psychology through education is, is this, is that um, what I saw and what was most urgent for me was to get these kids to be as capable as I knew they could be, academically, and, and so that when they got off and they was not the end it's the beginning that they they could do something. They'd be, that they'd be able to earn a living and save some money for retirement and have their own family and there was a big yawning gap I mean people call it the achievement gap but when it's really right there in front of you and this kid who is 14 years old like cannot add single digit numbers and like they can't you know write a sentence like that was that the gap is very real it was so um you know, powerful for me to realize also by spending time with these kids that really in terms of like what I, my, as their math teacher, wanted them to learn, I, I felt like it was within their intellectual reach. In other words, I wasn't going home at the end of the day thinking, well, you know, this kid is, is never going to learn algebra because they just don't have the neurons, you know, like they don't have the capacity. But I did see that there were capabilities, there were habits, there were mindsets that these kids lacked that were in the way of them reaching their potential. So I came to the study of the psychology of achievement through that path. I'm often asked, you know, why don't you study, um, you know, gratitude or why don't you study kindness or, you know, honesty? And I, I think to myself, I've got two kids at home. They're 14 and 13. I for sure want them to be kind and grateful and honest and a bunch of other things, but I don't study them. Um, it's not that I don't think they're important, um, but, but you can only really study one or two things. And I, I do think that if I think about like why I chose to study what I study, I think it's because when I was with these kids struggling, it's that um, I saw the barriers, the psychological barriers that stood in the way of, of a successful 
life, th those were the things that I ended up gravitating to. So if, if I can sort of take the answer to that question just a step further, you, you really can't teach gratitude and happiness until someone knows how to to achieve something and to and to feel good about something, right? Like, how do you take someone who doesn't have um, what you uh, have a grit, isn't able, to, isn't accomplishing, and can't accomplish anything, or is unable to accomplish something? How do you teach them gratitude, right? How do you teach them to be happy? It seems well, inverted. So you know, this is um this is a debate that um, I don't know that I have a strong position on. I don't know that. Um, that you have to sequence it entirely. Like, it's not like I think you should take care of their grit and their self-control. And then only then, you know, do you want to make them grateful? And I actually, my intuition is actually that a lot of these things go together. Um, when we look at our data, the kids who teachers say, you know, this is a grateful kid. This is a kid who like genuinely feels and expresses appreciation for what they have and un an understanding of the, the people for whom you know, this this has been part of their life and they made it happen. Those grateful kids tend to be the kids who are good at regulating their emotion, their attention. Those are the same ones who are gritty. They persist despite frustration. They stay focused on their goals. Now, you could ask the question, why do character strengths like gratitude and open-minded thinking and grit, why do they go together? You know, like if, and one thing might be that, you know, the there's different possibilities. I think some of these sort of lead do lead to each other, you know, like now I'm kind of reasonably self-controlled kid and I can handle my emotions and that opens the door to feeling gratitude, you know, cause I got to handle it. The other thing I think that's going on and you know, life is complex. So sorry to be so nuanced here, but I think it is a relatively complicated picture. I think there are certain situations in which kids and adults thrive and they have certain features. And I think those features actually give rise to lots of different character strengths. The, the two dimensions that I think are most important is the appropriate level of challenge. I mean, I don't think people grow in character, including grit or anything we talked about, unless, unless they're challenged to, you know, like when you see that your daughter hasn't written a thank you note um, to somebody who gave them a present, and you, you need to like take the time and like challenge your daughter, be like, you know what? Like, let's, let's mentally think about what this person did to earn the money and then go to the store, think about what you wanted, send it to you, write you a card. Like, let's think about, like, doing what you weren't going to do without me, challenging you to do it. But, like, let's, you know, write that note back. They need challenge, appropriate levels of challenge, not like, uh, you know, um, crazy beyond what they can handle challenge and then they they really need support and i think that challenge and support you know that parent who also says like look you're not a bad person for not writing there like i totally love you i love you unconditionally um you know that challenge and support might be the ingredients that give rise to grit but also these other these other qualities that i don't study but that are you know hugely important i think you're right it really is nuanced and i think that was a good answer and, and you know, one of these days when I'm in New York or in Pennsylvania, I'll pest you some more. We'll sit down for dinner and we'll go through all this. I'm fascinated by this type of stuff. But I, I you know, we spent hours on here going on this. So, but I agree. I think there's a lot to it. And, and I will not let us get down this rat hole, but it, it, it can't help but let me think about what's happening in the election and the way people view their candidates and view where we are in this country. And the mere fact that someone says, you know, let's just make this country great again, suggests all kinds of things about, 
you know, their, the filter that they're looking at great um, happiness and, and grace and appreciation, et cetera. So, but I, I won't let us divulge, I promise. <laughs> I mean, diverge. So, all right. So one of the things I thought was really fascinating and then from a backstory, then we're going to move into the front story, if you will, is your observation with your students, right? You, you alluded to it a bit, but you had these kids that weren't necessarily the smartest kids. You had these kids who weren't, didn't have the highest IQs, um, weren't necessarily what you would call the, the ones that were supposed to succeed, and they were outperforming. And isn't that was the trigger? Talk a little about the trigger for this idea, wait a minute, something's not right. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when you start teaching a class, it's it's very obvious. I mean, all of us have been in situations where we were teaching somebody something new, or we're you know we're part of whatever we're part of a group of people learning something new for the first time. It's pretty obvious, pretty early on, that some people do learn faster in those in those domains. I mean, you know, like take a skiing lesson, ten of you, two people with like thirty minutes, they're just like going down the slope, and you know, somebody's really struggling. I had the same experience as a teacher, there are kids for whom math came very easily and very quickly, and, and then others who struggled, so this whole continuum. The, the observation, the, the impetus for a lot of my work came from the fact that that ability did not always guarantee performing the best at the end of the year. And, and I'm not saying that being smart is a bad thing, or that there wasn't any correlation. I mean, obviously, the kids who are able, on, on average, did fairly well. But there were absolutely exceptions. I mean, kids who are so bright, who, who just tanked. I mean, who just, like, never did their homework, who never studied, who totally goofed off uh, in class. And, you know, they didn't – math isn't magic. I mean, you have to actually apply yourself. And so at the end of the year, they didn't have good grades, right? They, they hadn't mastered what I asked them to master. And I did have these kids who weren't obviously, uh, you know, more gifted, but they they worked hard. I mean, they were, they were open. You know, a lot of um, people will call this like coachability. I mean, they were yeah. yeah. coachability. It's like I think that's a real thing. It's like these kids were open for feedback. You know, when I would say like, no, not like that, like this, you know, they weren't defensive. They were they were like, oh, what do you mean? Like, why not like this? You know, it's like so. So the, a lot of those kids did did phenomenally well. I mean, I had a kid who um, was placed him into my class. This kid named David, who I actually saw, I, I kept in touch with him, you know, since he was in my freshman algebra class. And I can't remember how many years ago it is, but he's like all grown up. He has his PhD. He's, he's actually literally a rocket. Three or four, mind. just three or four, Angela, just three or four yeah. years ago. You're only 29. He's a very years old. Um, but he. Uh, you know, he started off in my class. I wasn't teaching the highest level class. I wasn't assigned to teach the highest level class uh, as, a, as a sort of rookie teacher. And um, this kid was placed into my group, not the highest level group, you know, based on a, one of the like, placement tests, right? Like, what can this kid do? And he was very quiet. Um, and he just like, you know, I, you wouldn't think anything of this kid. But he was so dedicated. First, he just loved learning about math and just such a hard worker. He graduated, uh, we got him into the higher level math class. He transferred out of my class in the middle of the year. Just like, you know, just put him in the higher level. He struggled again. He, he got bad grades, but he, he worked his way back. And then he went to Swarthmore. He was an engineering major. He went to UCLA, got his PhD in rocket science. I mean, you know, physics, whatever, I don't know, like whatever, aerophysics. And then, um, and you know, now he's, he's really successful. The, the greatest thing about the story, by the way, 
is that um, when I when I saw him on book tour, um, you know, when we and then since then I really had some time to talk, and I I said like, are you happy? And he's like, you know, I'm pretty happy. And I was like, well, when when are you when are you really happy? And he's like, you know, I'm really happy when, when I'm teaching kids. So the 360 on this story is that um, I think he's going to go back and become a math teacher. And you know, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully that math teacher who just like sees kids and sees what they can do. Oftentimes, the kids can't even see it themselves. That, I, I love that story. I remember you talked about it in the book. I mean, that is just phenomenal. All right, so. We know we got the backstory now. We know how you came to it. We're glad you did it. So let's kind of move this into adults now, right? And and I see personally, you know, I I'm gritty sometimes, not gritty other times. But I was just talking to someone today. It drives one of my clients. It drives me insane. What appears to be the lack of app. I mean, the amount of apathy that most people take in their life. I actually did a little. Um, I should have sent it to you beforehand. I, I do these these short spaz out sex things, right? I just go off on something that's bothering me. I go on these rants. And one of them was on the idea that people aren't very good at their jobs, that, that you know, 20% excel, 10% are off when the rest are just sort of in the middle. And I say, you chose your job and you choose not to be amazing at it. Why is it so few people have a commitment to this? I think this is a great question. I'll answer it if you'll also answer it. I mean, I'm really interested in what you think because uh, you clearly, um, you know, you clearly observe the same thing I do. I mean, it is a bit of a puzzle. It's in particular a puzzle when you think about how happy being really good at something makes you, right? I mean, there is, a, I think, a basic human need, and it's not just me, right? Like most psychologists who study motivation believe that there is a basic human motive for competence. Uh, you know, you could also say it in a different way, like that there's a basic human motive for excellence. Like everybody can, everybody knows the difference between like, you know, a job done well and a job done really well. And, and it, and it brings a, like, without even thinking about it, it makes, it gratifies you. So it, it is in a way like irrational if you think about it. It's like, why won't people do that? Um, I don't have a complete answer for it. I'm also, you know, puzzled by it, but um, I would say that, you know, you always have to, I, I actually think people are pretty rational in the sense that, um, you know, they are doing things that they, that feel good and they, t they tend not to do things that feel bad. I mean, they don't put their hands on hot stoves and they, you know, they, they, they'll eat the food that's more delicious, not less delicious. And, and the question is like, you know, maybe there's some way in which high performing people are able to find the gratification of being excellent, which is always a little bit deferred in time, right? Um, maybe they're able to find some immediate gratification in the process. Um, you know, one of the people that I studied for the book, um, and he's a paragon of great Bob Mankoff, who, you know, got rejected from the New Yorker 2,000 times uh, in a row as a cartoonist before he got one in, and now is the, you know, longtime editor of the cartoons of the New Yorker. And he said that, you know, at this point in his career, if he can just make himself laugh a little while, like if he finds these gratifications in the process, I think, and um, and maybe what we shouldn't be asking people to do is delay gratification forever. And like, you know, if you work, like if you work 70 hours a week, you know, and you overcome all this, then like 10 years from now, you know, you might have this. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like, this is my lab notebook, right? When I check off like one thing, I put a circle next to everything I haven't done. I check off one thing. I mean, 
I don't do a cartwheel, but like, um, it's not a really well sniff, but it's like, I get a little, you know, I get a little dopamine burst. I'm like, oh, great. So, so it's a really interesting puzzle, but I think that you always have to start with the assumption that people are in some way rational. So if you, if that person is like, you know, you go into the store and they're like on their phone and they're not even paying attention to you, but their whole job is to sell you stuff. And you're like, why aren't you being better at your job? I think you have to really ask why, but ask why in a way that assumes that what they're doing has some rational basis. Uh, yes, the whole the whole rational argument I find interesting too. I mean, there's been a lot of economics around the, the quote unquote concept of rational, right? So even that in itself is a whole different discipline. Um, you know, I, I think, I, have, I, I think, look, I'm not the expert like you, I, I'm, I'm a hack. I, I'm probably one of those students that you would have loved and hated, but um, I, I am extremely aware and I process information. I don't let it get away from me. So this is a hack's point of view. I think there's a micro answer and a macro answer. The micro answer I think is more deep in the rationale and I haven't got that one figured out. But the macro, I have a, a slightly better understanding. I believe it's this. Through small unintended consequences or decisions we make, we, I, I, create, I call it the wall. We start building this brick wall around ourselves, right? Because we're chasing the American dream. We wanted something now. We, we didn't save our money. We, we made a lot of bad choices that create this wall that pins us in. And so now we're doing something not because it's what we're passionate about or not because it's really what we want to do. We're doing it because we have to do it. And when you have to do something, the drive or motivation to excel at it is, is elevated. Now, I believe some people that light bulb goes off and they realize, okay, wait a minute, the only way to get out of this, to take these bricks off is to get really good at this because I hate it. And if I get really good at it, then I can be more successful and then it'll be my out, right? With less risk. I don't have to knock it down or, or lose my job or go start all over again. I can get really, really good at this and take some of the wall down and then it creates opportunities. So I think what happens is by default, people find themselves in a situation doing something they don't want, including with all due respect, parenting, I think a lot of times people get themselves in situations that they really didn't want the children, but they chose to anyways. And now they're struggling at trying to be a committed, dedicated, awesome parent all the time, which is hard, even if you have the means. I think it's with the jobs we take. I think in the neighborhoods we live in. I think, I think we make a lot of decisions, small decisions that get us in a position where like, oh my God. And it's overwhelming. So they go into uh, what I'll call coast mode or, or maintain mode. I just don't want to go any deeper, but I, I, I'm not committing to getting out and I want to just get away from this. So I don't know. What do you think? That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, and then I need to reflect on it a little more. But I do know that one of the founders of uh, cognitive therapy, this approach to psychotherapy that really asks people to examine their thoughts. And, um, and the assumption is that like, if, if the thoughts are what give rise to your feelings, your emotions, and you don't like the emotions and the feelings that you have, you should, you should go upstream from that. And like, what are those thoughts that are really driving it, right? So one of the founders uh, was Aaron Beck, who's right here in Philadelphia, and the other um, was Albert Ellis. So around the same time, these two psychologists were kind of coming to this insight. And Albert Ellis always said that like, ought or should are not good words. You know, they're not, oh. not, they're not healthy words, right? And it is interesting. There's um, there, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's a reason why we feel like we should, you know, eat a salad for lunch or we like ought to call our mothers back or something. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that we, that we don't, that, 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 like that feeling of obligation is always a bad thing. 
because that is partly what morality is. I mean, feeling an obligation to do the right thing, even if it doesn't feel good. But there is another way of thinking about it, um, which I think, by the way, I don't want to put words. I think Will Smith would approve of this, just like thinking about the way he. <laughs> There is. <laughs> like, so he says, you know, it must be right. But no, I mean, there is this uh, philosopher named Harry Frankfurt at um, Princeton who wrote this essay on what it means to be free. You know, what it what does it mean for a human being to truly have free will? And he said that you know, lots of creatures have wants, you know, like animals have wants, you know, they want food, they want uh, safety, they want uh, water, but only human beings, you know, are free in the sense that we can, we have want to want, he calls them like secondary desires, like, you know, I want this ice cream cone, but maybe I don't want to want the ice cream cone, in fact, I sort of wish I didn't want the ice cream cone, right, and that um, that's kind of another way of thinking about oughts and shoulds, you know, maybe instead of thinking like, oh, I should call my mother, you know, like, oh, I should have a salad. Maybe actually we think about it as like, I want to want to call my mother. Um, anyway, it's very deep and it's like blowing yes. my heart. I won't go but even this, focus, I, I heard a phrase on this the other day, focus on the opportunity, not the obligation. Right, right. It's like, it's like, do you want this? You know, like if you, if you want to be in shape, then, then you, sh then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pivot, but I do think there's something very powerful there. And I will say that, you know, for lack of a better word, one observation of these people that I study who are very gritty and successful is like, wow, they are by and large the most positive people. I mean, they're just like crazy positive people. They're always looking for like what they could have learned in that situation. And so, so it wasn't all bad because, you know, they came out with these two lessons. I mean, that is, uh, call it whatever you want, but it is, it is a very, um, one of the kids I, I wrote about in the book that, so you might remember this kid, Cody Coleman, he, he grew up in this like terrible, 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 you know, just like, like right out of the, um, you know, New York Times op-ed section about just like poverty and kids dysfunctional lives. And this kid ends up going to MIT, but not only does he go to MIT, he graduates with a four nine out of five. Not only does he graduate with a four nine out of five, electrical engineering and computer science, right? Not like a slacker major. Um, and and this kid, when I talked to him, and I was like, "What? Who are you? Like this doesn't happen, you know?" And um, and he said, "Like I, I'm the happiest, most positive person you'll meet." I mean, I he's and that was the first thing out of his mouth, right? He actually didn't say grit. He said, "Like I am the." The happy, I mean, he contacted me because he felt like he was very gritty and that that was sort of the fuel. But but if you kind of ask, like, you know, I think that's really interesting. And I think this um, um, way of pivoting things, right? So when you, you know, two people walk out of the same situation, one of them only sees doom and gloom. The other one sees, like, you know, what did they learn and, you know, what are they going to do next? You know, you have, there's your next research project. I mean, and I talk about it in my book. You have the, one of the best minds and the idea of happiness and it was your mentor, Seligman, right? So you two come together and work on that bad boy. This Maybe there's something there. Yeah, I think I should work with Marty more. Yeah, he was my PhD advisor. His office is right right over there. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, his, his thinking is, uh, as you know, um, constantly evolving and, one thing he would say, if you were joining us, is that, you know, happiness isn't one thing, it's many things. It's, you know, you, there's there's pleasure, right? There's sort of like having a lot of positive emotion. There's being engaged, you know, being in the flow state at the extreme. There is relationships, which is probably, if you look at data, the single most predictive factor in whether you're happy. Do you have 
do you have healthy and warm relationships with other people? Um, there is meaning, you know, a sense of purpose um, for me uh, and, and for the great research, like other centered purpose, belonging to and serving other people. Um, and then finally, there's achievement, which is what I spend a lot of my life uh, studying. And, and Marty would say, you know, like a, a flourishing life has to have at least some of all five of those things. Yeah, I can. Yes, I, I can see that. And and as I heard you talk, I was processing especially the piece about giving to others and having a greater purpose. And I, and I can feel when I'm my head spaces in how this can affect other people. I'm more energized and my head spaces. How am I making this work for me? Cause I have bills to pay or I want to be something. It's, um, it's not as motivating. It's, it's a very interesting. It just, it just got me physically right there. All right. So everybody, we are talking to Angela Duckworth. She is the author of the best-selling book grit. She is full of energy. She has great stories. She has lots of fun. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn the table a little here in, and instead of moving into some actionable stuff. So how, how do people, and pr primarily let's talk about salespeople or, or just adults in the workplace, how do people really turn the grit spigot on? Is even a spigot you can turn on, how, how do people become more gritty? You know, one thing that I've learned from my research is that, you know, we think about people as, as you know, are they gritty, are they not gritty, are they extroverted, are they not? And in our eye, you know, other people end up being almost these like caricatures who don't change very much, right? But actually, if you, if you, look at what people do across different situations, different days, um, different times in their life, but even just situations in a given day, there's a lot of variability, right? So so I think you mentioned it. Or like you could be gritty in one domain but not in another. You could be nice to one person, rude to another, right? And so um, I think a lot of the potential that's sort of on the table would be trying to figure out when are you at your best and, and why, and then um, why not be that way those other times? So it's it's kind of, you know, if you have a distribution for like you at your best, you at your worst, and then there's like a lot of time where you're somewhere in between, you know, why couldn't you shift this distribution? Why couldn't you live at the upper end of your distribution? And I think it starts with, uh, like everything else, some self-awareness, right? Um, mm. you know, like, who are you nice to? And or, or like, that's about niceness, but like, when are you most passionate and persevering? You had a little bit of insight just there. You're like, you know, when, it, when, it, when, it, when, it's, when it's situations where like other people are benefiting, that turns on the motivation or the drive. You know, and sometimes it can be other things. Like, it's like a lot of it is interest. You know, I'm, I'm really interested in psychology. And aside from the current ridiculousness of the political landscape, I mean, I, countries like go nuts. Uh, I mean, I'm generally interested in politics. I just, I, I sort of recently, I'm feeling like you, we all have a responsibility to be interested in politics because America's just going Amen. Like, crazy. Amen. Right, um, and we all yeah. need to vote. We all need to read the newspaper. But, but in general, right, in my preference is like to not be told about you know anything about politics. Or, so I think, you know, then that's a good thing to observe in me. Like to to I it took me until I was thirty two to figure out I even wanted to be a psychologist, right? And believe me, I would have done it earlier if I could have. But I didn't really have the self understanding to realize that when I'm thinking about psychology, when I'm thinking about people and why they do what they do, I am endlessly fascinated. I don't know why I didn't think of it earlier because I was 32 when I figured it out, but I was 16, which is half that lifetime ago, right? 16 years old when I had this course catalog uh, for summer school and I could pick anything and I picked psychology and writing. And then I, you know, like that's kind of what I grew up to be. So 
don't know what took so long. But that um that like observation is like, you know, if I have a day where I do get my run in, where I do make that difficult phone call, where I do get all my work done, where I feel like great at the end of the day, that awareness, that reflection be like, well, what why do I think that was? And what is it about a bad day that makes it a bad day? How do I, it's not even necessarily like trying to change something fundamental about you. It's really about living at the upper end of your distribution. So you, you hit this several times and, it, and, and yeah, I won't, I won't punch you. The idea of self-awareness. I'd like to spend a few minutes on this because I think people run from themselves more often than not. One of my favorite books of all time is Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Have you read that book? I have it. It was a great title. Oh, you love it because it's one of those books that they probably could have done in half the book, but still that's okay. The whole premise is the idea of, of cognitive dissonance and self-justification mm. around the idea of personal awareness, this perception of self. So, yeah. you know, I perceive myself to be a certain way. And if any of my actions, you know, conscious or subconscious could reflect that is inconsistent with my sense of self, I don't want to hear it. Right. right. So this idea of, I am fascinated with this idea of self-awareness and how, it's, how it affects people positively and negatively, but I think the lack of is the big one. Should go a little deeper on this idea of, of our lack of willingness to address self-awareness. Yeah, I, I, um, I was on the phone this morning with um, another professor, but he used to be a, a postdoc researcher in my lab. So we continue to collaborate. His name is Brian Gala. He's at uh, Pitt. He's at UPitt. And um, he studies mindfulness, and he's actually a really like a lifetime meditation um, you know, as a practitioner. But we have this grant to study mindfulness for a couple of years. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, how this applies to, you know, the, the everyday struggles that you and I and everybody else has. And one of the things he said is like, you know, the, the core of mindfulness is when you can say the sky is blue or it's about to rain with the same amount of non-judgmental awareness as, you know, I uh, got fired, <laughs> you know, like you have to be able to be like, because it's all about truth, right? Like it is about terrain, which I think it is actually um, <laughs> like, you know, I, you know, did X, Y, and Z wrong. Like, you know, people don't like me because I dominate the conversation or like, I'm a little bit racist or, you know, I mean, like things that are true, you know, like people don't want to, so, so it, it I, <laughs> It's like, I think that that is uh, not a, something that comes naturally for most of us. I mean, for lots of reasons, we have um, defenses against that. But I do think that that is, um, you know, that is a level of awareness to really be able to know yourself, um, all the parts that are great, all the parts that aren't so great, um, you know, some of the parts that you, um, you know, might want to change. You know, with the kind of non-judgment, that's what mindfulness is defined as, non-judgmental awareness of, of reality, of the present. So anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't um, have good data on this, but I can tell you from interviewing exemplars of, of grit that the, the signature sort of like common denominator, you know, I mean, I write in the book, they say, you know, they have deep interests and they have a sense of purpose, they know how to practice, they have resilience, they have, they have hope. But I think actually in a way, what what has gotten them to a lot of these things is um is a self awareness a reflection like a they're they're very metacognitively aware people they're not like yeah. you know yeah. not just like reacting um mm -hmm. 
And I think that is actually, you know, where growth comes from, right? We have a study where we're looking at how people rate themselves and how other people rate you, in particular kids, right? Jahari's window. What? Sort of like Jahari's window. What's that? Oh, how people see you, how you see you. The oh, four quadrants. Oh, so, it, so it's like, it's okay. How you see me and what, how I see me. So we both see the same thing, yeah. right? Then how I see me that you don't see me. So I have a, so I'm hiding something from you, right? Oh, Maybe yeah. something I don't want to show to the world. Then there's what I don't see in me and you don't see in me. So either it doesn't exist or it's unknown to both of us. Then there's what I don't see in me, but you see in me. And that's called the blind spot. Oh, interesting. And a lot of people get tripped up by their blind spot. Cause they like, to your point, do they think they're super engaging, but the world thinks they're a jerk because they're constantly instructing them. Right. They don't see that. Yeah. yeah, and I guess it could go the other way, right? It could go that, like, you know, you don't realize that you're, like, a great, funny guy, and, like, you know, everyone thinks that, but you don't even realize yeah. that, right? Um, yeah. So, so, um, so, so that's great. I, I didn't learn that. I love, I love learning things I don't know. Um, I, we have this data on um, kids who rate themselves and their behavior, right, in the classroom, and then, like, all of their teachers rate them, right? So, in that case, there's a, the teachers have a real advantage, especially when you have all the teachers' perspective in the kid. So you could ask the question, like, how accurate are kids? Well, you know, there's a lot of, there is a fair amount of, like, there are a lot of kids who just get it spot on. You know, using the same question, like, the kids, the number that comes out is, like, exactly what the teacher, there are a lot of kids like that. There are a lot of kids who um, overrate themselves, right? Like, they think they they think they're like paying attention, you know, and then their, their teachers are like, no, I don't really see that. Um, and then there's a handful of kids, not many, who um, underrate themselves. But what we find is that um, the kids, in the short term at least, you know, the kids who overrate themselves, they have an inflated sense of their self-control, they're actually happier. Like, they're like, yeah, life is pretty great, but they don't do well, especially like if you follow their performance over time. Objectively speaking, you know, their grades and their standardized test score and like are are, are don't do don't don't they're not great um and they're worse than other kids so i think in a way delusional you know not like seeing your blind spot you know that that lack of awareness i mean if you ask the question like why aren't we all self-aware like why don't we all become self-aware because i think that's right because it, it causes you some unhappiness i mean you know wow. I to, like i gave a talk in um chicago on the book and um uh, one of the school principals, you know, wrote me back and was like, thank you. Like, here are some things that were really great. You know, um, I want to give you some feedback because, you know, you're all about pr practice and feedback. He's like, he's like, you know, sometimes when you say things in a certain way, like it could be, you know, it could be a little bit condescending, right? And I was like, what? I'm not condescending. Like, I'm so not condescending. Like, the last thing I am is... And I think, he, and then I had to think, of it. I was like, you know, he has to be right. If somebody in the audience says that I think you're a little... Like... They're right. I mean, how can he? How can he not be right? He's the one who's hearing it. If he hears it as condescending, that's what I was saying. And I wrote him back, and I thanked him, and I asked him to coach me a little bit. And he gave me some pointers about like ways of saying things that are not condescending. When I read them. I was like, you know what? That is way better. So that was painful for me. I didn't like it, um, and I haven't forced myself to do it. Uh, maybe I'll be evolved enough someday so that I'm so mindful that I can just be like, oh, I'm being told that I was wrong and I will just, you know, I, but I'm not there yet. That's for sure. God. I really like how you handled that. I really do. Because one of the challenges I have, I have a really big personality as you can imagine, and I get feedback all the time. And I try, I work really hard when they get the feedback. The first thing I want, the first thing I try to do is stop that feeling. It stops coming up. Like you want to do like this. No, 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 no. Push it, push it down, push it down. <laughs> and you listen, 
where the conflict comes from me, and and I, I don't know if you've gotten here, if you've witnessed it, is for that it, it, doing some of the things that that man may have suggested, right, could trigger the other side of the spectrum where someone says, you know, you used to be really engaging and challenging, yeah. and now and now you're not, right? So there, I, I honestly believe there's this place where. You can't be all things to all people. So where if your style is considered, like mine, challenging and engaging, I have raving fans for that. Some people hate it for a particular reason. If I take that in, I, I have to be careful not to take so much in that now this person likes me or, or appreciates it. I'm not, but now these people don't think I'm very challenging or engaging. Right, right. And you don't want to be a weather vane, right? You don't want to be yeah. like, oh, now I have to do this. Now I have to do that. I mean, what you're listening for is what you would have to agree with. I mean, when I read that, I was like, you know, I have to, I mean, I was thinking about it. It's like, I think he's right. I, someone else told me, he's like, why, why do you have all these like, guys in your slides? And I was like, what do you mean all these guys? And they're like, Will Smith, you know, like Pete Carroll. Yeah. Like, and, and, I, and then I pointed out the women in the slides. I was like, yeah, but I also have like Martha Graham and I have Catherine. <laughs> Cox, but then I did count and I was like okay they're right there were more guys in the slides than there are women so I think that's just like a fact I mean I think you don't want to take uh, like when I read the reviews of my book I mean I, like there are some nasty nasty people like yeah, I saw that sorry girl sorry I saw that and I felt for you I think I figured out that I have a thin skin but like I you know, um, you don't want to respond to like, if, if you try to like, please every Amazon reviewer, right, you will write a shit book, right? Because, you know, title's too long, title's too short, I don't like the cover, you know, too thin, too many stories, not enough stories, too much data, not enough data, like, you know, you won't even know who you are anymore. But I, yeah. but I do think, you know, I've seen these people like so because I because of the people I study, you know, they're Olympic athletes, or they're, they're famous, right, for something. You know, the one thing I always want to myself be, and I think the best ones that I study are, is that, you know, they're, they really are never done learning. And so they, they want people to be honest with them and they want to be honest with themselves, yeah. you know, yeah. and that is hard with success because basically the more successful you get, the more people are just going to tell you you're great. Yes, yes, yes. I, I feel you. I, I completely feel you there. All right. So we've opened this up to see to anybody who wants to jump in. So folks, anybody who wants to jump in, meet Angela, ask a question, jump in. And while we wait for that, so one of the things about, I want to move this right to sales. This, we've been, this has been so good, and I own not driving it directly into the sales world, but I like where we were going. I think the really smart people can get something out of this and apply it to themselves. But in sales, there's a lot of pressure for salespeople to, to be successful. Their, their numbers, unlike any other job, are right in front of them. The whole world sees he's making it. He's not, there's no hiding in sales. I think for, for some people who, who have this natural inclination to grit, if there's such a thing, or they've learned it early, they do really well. There's a large chunk of people who have a hard time getting to that next level. In, in something like sales and meeting quota and doing those types of things, what do you say to salespeople about that and how they can leverage grit in, in your lessons? So, you know, I think that the answer might be different for different people, depending on on the why, right? Um, you know, if if like I had a former student, you know, he dropped by today. I won't embarrass him by naming him because he'll kill me. <laughs> he like shows up in my office and I'm like, what the hell are you doing here? And he's like, I'm just here, you know, whatever. You already graduated. And I sat around my office. I was like, get a job yet? He's like, nah, I ain't get a job yet. And I was like, all right, I need your CV. I need your cover letter. You know, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Okay, deadline, 24 hours. But I asked him like, like if I interview, like why should I hire you, right? Like why? What do you, what's what's the what's the real answer to that? And he was like, because I'm proficient. 
And I was like, Ugh, that's an awful answer. What does that mean? He's like, because like if this is like okay and this is really great, like I'm solidly here. And I was like, what? I was like, <laughs> like you're gonna die. I'm gonna die. How long it is? It's not that long. Like, like you could kill it. Like don't don't be like I'm gonna be proficient, right? Like. <laughs> And he's like, well, maybe I should say it a different way. And I'm like, well, for sure you should say it a different way, but you should do it a different way, right? Like, you know, you're like 22. Like, you know, like, like proficient. So anyway, if he's listening, uh, he'll, he'll be really glad I didn't say his name. But anyway, so I think the question is why, That which is why I asked him. I mean, before I, I end up like, you know, making prescriptions, I mean, I think it always starts with why am I not interested in this? Um, you know, am I, um, do I feel like it lacks meaning for me? You know, is there something else that I really want to do? Um, are there some things that I just have to suck it up and be mature about, like getting feedback? Um, do I think the, that, you know, like whatever it is, like I think you have to start with the why because there's different answers to the why and then, and then you have to start from there. So you brought in, we're going to introduce Jeff in one second, but in these last 10 minutes, you brought in Simon Sinek, David Dunning. By the way, you know David. Don't you know David? Oh, no. Wait, who is he? I can't remember. The Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger oh, effect. Oh, I don't know him personally, but, like, I know. Okay, I do. You two need to know each other because you're doing some of the work that he's already got a foundation on. Oh, he's, like, a giant. He's, like, amazing. Yeah, so if, if you'd like an introduction, I can do a great guy. He's over at University of Michigan now. But his whole idea of self-assessment, like, how did I do versus my level of skill, yeah. Right. So, so if you were wrong, that, I can do it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. He's no. He's like I'm such a big fan. All right. I will connect you to that. So Jeff, welcome, a man. Welcome, hey. welcome, welcome. So uh, it's all it's all yours, baby. My question for Dr. Dugworth: It there's more to grit than persistence, clearly. But do you find people being persistent to a fault, or maybe to their own detriment, as a result of trying to be grittier? You know, I haven't found many examples of that just in, you know, in my research, but let me first say it's certainly possible, right, to, to, to hang on too long to something, right? I mean, to stay in a job long past, to stay in a relationship, right, long past its expiration date. Um, <laughs> why that would be is because they're like the real cost of that isn't, you know, oh, I'm tired. The real cost is, is opportunity cost, as the economists would say, like what you could have done, like the opportunity that you gave up because you were with this person, you know, working in this company. Um, and I, I think it's certainly possible. I think that the, um, you know, the advice I would have to kind of like, how would you not do that, right? I mean, you know, on the one hand, I'm saying like, work really hard, even when the odds are against you. And how do you not get into that hole? I think that, um, you know, when two things, like one is, you know, I always like when I meet somebody that I really admire, I always ask them like, what's your telos? You know, like, what are you about? Like, you know, like, what, what are you for? Like, what, what, what is the one thing that you know, you could argue is like the theme of your life? Um, and, and sometimes people have it, but oftentimes they're like, I don't know, you know, but, but it's always a good homework assignment. And I think that the people who really have a life where it, is integrated. There's like harmony. Um, it, they they do. They know what they're about. They know what they're about, and therefore all those sub goals and the to do lists and the like. It it it's aligned. It's congruent, and it makes sense. And um, if you keep your eye on your telos, which is usually very abstract. I mean, for me, it's using psychological science to help kids thrive. I mean, every day, everything I do, including this podcast, is like, is this in some way going to help me achieve the goal of helping kids through psychological science? You know, that's that's something where I can be very 
tenacious and stubborn about. But I, I think that like it gives me flexibility on the bottom end. Do I have to be working on this project? Like maybe not. Like maybe this collaborator, maybe they're a pain in the ass and they never answer their emails. Like maybe I can give up on this collaborator, but I'm staying loyal to the Telos. That's one thing. The second thing is, you know, having a small group of trusted advisors. That, that are not like random people blogging about you that are not thoughtful, but like, you know, the people that you really admire and respect, like one or two of them, so that they can be your sanity check and be like, hey, am I being a total idiot here? Well, and that comes back to self-awareness, right? Like what you were just talking about a few minutes ago and, and understanding. I don't know. There's, there aren't very many people who actually have that, let alone the self-awareness or knowing what that telos is. And I think what's What's interesting is, you know, I think many of the people who are watching or listening have read or are at least familiar with these books or these concepts that we're talking about and how they all relate back to that. And grit is an extension of knowing what it is that you're supposed to be doing and knowing that it's more about being persistent, but knowing what you're being persistent in and how that relates to what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do it, right? Like, like I, when I, even when I was writing that part of the book where I talk about, you know, your, your purpose and then also, you know, these goals that are like nested in a little Christmas tree with your top level goal on top. And I actually couldn't articulate before I wrote that chapter, what mine was. I mean, I had it, it was a little smushy, you know what I mean? Definitely about yeah. kids. And then I actually made myself do it. Like I gave myself that homework and I was like, oh, you know what? Really, that is what it is, and it made everything clear. And I um, was with this media consultant, this guy who was great. He coached me to, you know, be on these like talk shows and not screw it up. And um, we were talking, he's giving me feedback, you know, stop biting your lip, don't drink water. Like he wouldn't be happy that I was drinking this because that was one of the things that like. Hey, I'm thrilled. It's all about authenticity. I got my Red Bull. You got no, your water. Bring it, people. He's like, look, that doesn't look good. Um, but so, uh, but then I asked him, you know, because he really understood the book. But I said to him, it's like, so by the way, what's your telos? And he's like, uh, and then, you know, he wrote me back 24 hours later by email. And he said, I figured out my telos. My telos is helping people share their story. Uh, and, and when he understood that, he could understand every major decision that he had made that was a good decision. Um, and he understood like when he was most motivated. And I think that is a really helpful thing. I think you know, self-awareness may not be the default, but it's definitely something that you can get better at. Well, it's great to meet you. I'll hop off so someone else can hop on. But uh, thanks for all the work you're doing. Thank you. Way to go, Bajorak. Way to go, brother. Well done. Thank you, my man. Um, all right. So I know we, we got like three minutes. And I yeah, I know. Look. Uh, he's old school. I am a huge believer that where the puck is going is authenticity and who people really are. No longer the whole buttoned up thing and put on an image and then be something somewhere else. So I'm glad you are exactly who you are today, sister. And I'm going to call you, I'm going to call you Angela. Uh, Dr. D, I kind of like though. I might sneak in and call you Dr. D, but I don't know about Dr. Duckworth. That's a, that's a mouthful and doesn't fit. I mean, <laughs> you're a good people. That's my um, wife's husband's name. I'm sorry? That's my white husband's name. It's a very white name, and I married this very white guy, and that's just. Thing. I, think that I wasn't even like thinking about it. I just changed my name. I wasn't even like a student, and now I have this. So it used to be. Like, so what was your maiden name? Lee, L E E, which has like I think it translates into like something beautiful in Chinese, like long extended wisdom or something. And now I'm like Duckworth. <laughs> Uh, you know, it is what it is, I suppose. We can go with Lee Duckworth if we want. We can go Lee Duckworth, right? <laughs> All right, so look, we got a few minutes. I I'm going to let you wrap this up. Uh, what do you want to end on? What do you want to tell people? Um, 
I think I want to say that, um, you know, really, if there's anything that I've learned is that, um, you know, people really are what my, you know, colleague and my friend Carol Dweck would say, you know, we are, we are born to learn and grow. It, it's a great freedom to know, you don't have to be perfect, you'll never be perfect, you make bad decisions, you know, like, lose your temper, to, but like, you know, we are all pretty much growing in a, most of us, I'd say, you know, in a good direction, or like, um, you know, we learn stuff, we get better, and, and data bear that out, by the way, it's not just sort of wishful thinking, and so um, the people that I've studied who are paragons of, of passion and perseverance are by no means perfect, you know, some of them struggle with depression, struggle with eating disorders, uh, some of them are also on medication, like, you know, bad marriages, good decisions, bad decisions, but, um, but so I think that the my recommendation is not to try to be perfect, but really to, you know, to say like every day, you know, can I just, you know, can I, can let, let me be my best today. Let me do something a little better than I did yesterday. Let me give it a shot. I like that. I think that's a, I think it's a, a great way to end it. I think um, if I could be so humble enough to add to it, I, I like to say, as you said, everybody learns every day. And I, I say this a lot in my speaking engagements, but that's the default setting. If we're deliberate in our learning, that's learning on steroids. Yeah. Right. It's um, yeah. I, I in order to be deliberate in learning, I have to be self-aware in order to know what I should be learning today, rather yeah. than being lucky. Oh, I'm bad at this. Look what I learned. That's a good map. Yeah. Uh, that could take yeah. a long time, so I'd be better off to learn that earlier, and I can accelerate my growth. Yeah. Jump so, the gear. Be in the driver's seat. All right. All right. Good. Good. So with that final note. Uh, just because I can, it's what I'm good at. Did you ever get to reading my book? Because I know I signed one for you. I have it on my bedstand. Oh. I started it. And oh, okay, good. And so you know how I am. So yeah. I'm sorry. Say that again. I said, well, A, I started it, and B, I finished whatever I begin. So you, you know, that's how that that bodes well. All right. So I'll be, of course, I will be very, very interested in your thoughts a bit, and and all honest thoughts, which I know I'll get from you as well, because it's written. So you know, it's nothing I can do about it now. It is what it is. <laughs> Um, all right, just listen, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this. I loved your enthusiasm. I loved your passion. I would love to do something like this again with you in a different setting or other setting in the future. Um, you made the mistake of giving me your cell phone number, so do not be surprised if I'm in Pennsylvania and I call you. Uh, <laughs> I would, I, I, I've only said this to one, one other guest, maybe. I like your coolest, like, I could hang and talk to you for hours. So I am, this is not the end. And I, and I'm, if I have a fault, I'm kind of, uh, not conceited, but I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of snobbish. Like, I don't, I don't connect with very many people. So I like people. Selective. Like, selective. Yes, very selective. I mean, I appreciate everybody, but really liking people. So I like you. So you got to get a call. It's in the end, just so you know. Snaps. All right. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Go make your call. Everybody else, this was the word. Thank you, Kiki. Uh, do what you got to do. I know she's in a rush. If you want to jump off, Angela, you can. I'm going to wrap up with uh, Kiki. Do we have any? Thank you, Angela. Do yeah. we have anything we need to close the, close on the show? What's next? What's our next? Who's our next guest? Do you remember? Oh,